Thanks to the wonderful folks at Anchor.fm. Welcome, listeners, to Tom Reads Your Story. Join voice actor Tom Zania as he reads from social media, news articles, his past audiobook recordings, and other spoken word projects, including those great writing projects that you send in. And now, here's your host, voice actor and podcaster, Tom Zania. And thank you, as always, Mr. Announcer, for that lovely introduction. Welcome to you, voice actors, writers of all kinds, and audiobook listeners. We are celebrating the spoken word. This is Tom Reads Your Story. Thanks for stopping by. I'm glad you're here. So, this week, the DNC, Democrat National Convention, and I heard a fantastic rendition of the Star-Spangled Banner, as I'm sure all of you saw, sung by children and adults, and it literally moved me to tears. It's by Francis Scott Key. But do we really know who he was? I'll be right back after this. The afterlife is not at all what Jack Duffy had expected. A failed suicide attempt launches him into a world that tests his abilities. In this world, he learns more about himself after a lifetime of horrific decisions. Written by Paul B. Kohler and narrated by Tom Zania. Listen to this incredible book by visiting audible.com. You know, isn't it really amazing 
how often we hear that song, the Star Spangled Banner, which I like. Uh, I'll be here to admit it. I, you know, when I heard it the other night, I, I really welled up. It was beautiful. It was beautifully shot. The arrangement was different. It wasn't just the same old. It was a different arrangement that was dramatic and beautifully sung. And I loved it. But do we ever think about who wrote that song? And do we know about his backstory? We're learning a lot. We have been learning a lot in the past months since the the uh, protests were happening, uh, the Black Lives Matter protests, about just who these founding fathers were and what it was they did and how they became rich. Many of them had slaves. The man who wrote The Star-Spangled Banner was Francis Scott Key, and he owned slaves. And I never knew that uh, until very recently. So uh, let's learn a little bit more about him from Wikipedia. From Wikipedia, Francis Scott Key. Francis Scott Key was an American lawyer, author, and amateur poet from Frederick, Maryland, who is best known for writing the lyrics for the American national anthem, The Star-Spangled Banner. Key observed the British bombardment of Fort McHenry in 1814, during the War of 1812. He was inspired upon seeing the American flag still flying over the fort at dawn, and wrote the poem Defense of Fort McHenry. It was published within a week with the suggested tune of the popular song To Anacreon in Heaven. The song with Key's lyrics became known as The Star-Spangled Banner and slowly gained in popularity as an unofficial anthem, finally achieving official status more than a century later under President Herbert Hoover as the national anthem. The national motto, In God We Trust, derives from a line in The Star-Spangled Banner. Key was a lawyer in Maryland and Washington, D.C., for four decades and worked on important cases, including the Burr conspiracy trial, and he argued numerous times before the Supreme Court. He was nominated for district attorney for the District of Columbia by President Andrew Jackson, where he served from 1833 to 1841. Key was a devout Episcopalian. Key owned slaves from 1800, during which time abolitionists ridiculed his words, claiming that America was more like the land of the free and home of the oppressed. As district attorney, he suppressed abolitionists and did not support an immediate end to slavery. He was also a leader of the American Colonization Society, which sent freed slaves to Africa. He freed some of his slaves in the 1830s, paying one ex-slave as his farm foreman. He publicly criticized slavery and gave free legal representation to some slaves seeking freedom, but he also represented owners of runaway slaves. During the War of 1812, Key and British prisoner exchange agent Colonel John Stuart Skinner dined aboard HMS Tonnant as the guests of Vice Admiral Alexander Cochrane, Rear Admiral George Cockburn, and Major General Robert Ross. Skinner and Key were there to negotiate the release of prisoners, one of whom was William Beans, 
a resident of Upper Marlboro, Maryland, who had been arrested after jailing British troops who were taking food from local farms. Skinner, Key, and Beans were not allowed to return to their sloop because they had become familiar with the strength and position of the British units and their intention to launch an attack upon Baltimore, and Key was unable to do anything but watch the bombarding of the American forces at Fort McHenry during the Battle of Baltimore on the night of September 13-14, At dawn, Key was able to see an American flag waving, and he later wrote a poem about his experience entitled Defense of Fort McHenry, which was published in William Petchen's American and Commercial Daily Advertiser on September 21, 1814. He took it to music publisher Thomas Carr, who adapted it to the rhythms of composer John Stafford Smith's To Anacreon in Heaven, a popular tune that Key had already used as a setting for his 1805 song When the Warrior Returns, celebrating American heroes of the First Barbary War. It was somewhat difficult to sing, yet it became increasingly popular, competing with Hail Columbia as the de facto national anthem by the time the Mexican-American War and the American Civil War. The song was finally adopted as the American national anthem more than a century after its first publication, first by an executive order from President Woodrow Wilson in 1916, and then by a congressional resolution in 1931, signed by President Herbert Hoover. The third stanza of the Star-Spangled Banner makes disparaging mention of blacks and demonstrates Key's opinion of their seeking freedom at the time by escaping to the British, who promised them freedom from American enslavement. Hmm, very interesting. There's one more thing um, I want to play today from the Smithsonian about Francis Scott Key and about the, you know, the the talk that's been happening about what we think of all these founding fathers and what they did. Listen. Where's the Debate on Francis Scott Key's Slaveholding Legacy? By Christopher Wilson, smithsonianmag.com. Every 4th of July, I ask my family to sit down in front of the radio as if we're tuning in to one of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's fireside chats, the nationally broadcasted speeches the 32nd president made between 1933 and 1934. Ours is a family tradition of listening while national public radio personalities recite the Declaration of Independence. Though the exercise works better in my head than it does in practice, it is always a challenge to get my nine- and six-year-old kids to sit quietly on a day promising parades and fireworks. I never fail to get something out of the experience. And I think my children do as well. We take a bit of time to contemplate the words and ideals that define the nation. Something about paying attention solely to spoken words for a few minutes provokes deep discussion. It is instructive and moving to hear the entire text in all its beautiful eloquence and with all the inherent irony of its rhetoric of freedom and equality contrasting with the realities of slavery and the treachery practice on the merciless Indian savages. When we consider the legacy of the Declaration and its author, Thomas Jefferson, 
we confront the debate this compelling paradox that the man who trumpeted the self-evident truth that all men are created equal owned some 175 slaves. We note the paradox underlying Jefferson's authorship of the Declaration. It comes up all the time, as in the smash Broadway hit Hamilton, when Lin-Manuel Miranda's Alexander Hamilton takes Jefferson down a peg or two. A civics lesson from a slaver. Hey, neighbor, your debts are paid because you don't pay for labor. We plant seeds in the South. We create. Yeah, keep ranting. We know who's really doing the planting. However, we fail to do the same with our national anthems composer, Francis Scott Key. All men are created equal and the land of the free. Both those mottos sprang from the pens of men with quite narrow views of equality and freedom. The seeming contradictions between Jefferson's slaveholding history, deeply racist personal views, his support of the institution of his political life, and his assertion of human rights in the Declaration, in many ways, parallel Key's story. In 1814, Key was a slaveholding lawyer from an old Maryland plantation family, who, thanks to a system of human bondage, had grown rich and powerful. When he wrote the poem that would, in 1931, become the national anthem and proclaim our nation the land of the free, like Jefferson, Key not only profited from slaves, he harbored racist conceptions of American citizenship and human potential. Africans in America, he said, were, quote, a distinct and inferior race of people, which all experience proves to be the greatest evil that afflicts a community. Unquote. A few weeks after British troops in the War of 1812 stunned and demoralized America by attacking Washington and setting the Capitol building and the White House ablaze on August 24, 1814, the British turned their attention to the vital seaport of Baltimore. On September 13, 1814, British warships commenced an attack on Fort McHenry, which protected the city's harbor. For 25 hours, bombs and rockets rained down on the fort, while Americans, still wondering whether their newfound freedom would really be so short-lived, awaited news of Baltimore's fate. Key, stuck aboard a British ship where he had been negotiating a prisoner release and barred by the officers of the HMS Tonnant, from leaving because he knew too much about their position, could only watch the battle and hope for the best. By the dawn's early light on the next day, Key saw the huge garrison flag, now on view at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, waving above Fort McHenry, and he realized that the Americans had survived the battle and stopped the enemy advance. The poem he wrote celebrated that star-spangled banner as a symbol of the resilience and triumph of the United States. Ironically, while Key was composing the line, Or the Land of the Free, it is likely that black slaves were trying to reach British ships in Baltimore Harbor. They knew that they were far more likely to find freedom and liberty under the Union Jack than they were under the Star-Spangled Banner. Additionally, Key used his office as the district attorney for the city of Washington from 1833 to 1840 to defend slavery, attacking the abolitionist movement in several high-profile cases. In the mid-1830s, the movement was gaining momentum, and with it came increased violence, 
particularly from pro-slavery mobs attacking free blacks and white abolitionists, and other methods to silence the growing cries for abolition. In a House of Representatives and United States Senate inundated with petitions from abolitionists calling for the ending or restriction of slavery, pro-slavery congressmen looked for a way to suppress the voices of abolitionists. In 1836, the House passed a series of gag rules to table all anti-slavery petitions and prevent them from being read or discussed, raising the ire of people like John Quincy Adams, who saw restricting debate an assault on basic First Amendment right of citizens to protest and petition. In the same year, shortly after a race riot in Washington, D.C., when an angry white mob set upon a well-known free black restaurant owner, Key likewise sought to crack down on the free speech of abolitionists he believed were riling things up in the city. Key prosecuted a New York doctor living in Georgetown for possessing abolitionist pamphlets. In the resulting case, U.S. v. Reuben Crandall, Key made national headlines by asking whether the property rights of slaveholders outweighed the free speech rights of those arguing for slavery's abolishment. Key hoped to silence abolitionists who, he charged, wished to associate and amalgamate with the Negro. Though Crandall's offense was nothing more than possessing abolitionist literature, Key felt that abolitionists' free speech rights were so dangerous that he sought, unsuccessfully, to have Crandall hanged. So why, unlike Jefferson, does Key get a pass? Why this seeming contradiction? Perhaps it is because the writer of the Declaration of Independence was also a president. And we judge, re-examine, and consider the legacy of our presidents fairly rigorously. Lincoln certainly gets taken to task, despite the Emancipation Proclamation, the 13th Amendment, and the Gettysburg Address. Many Americans are acutely aware of the ways in which his record conflicts with the myth of the Great Emancipator. However, while Key may not be as notable as a president, his poem is, and that was enough to make abolitionists ridicule his words during his lifetime by sneering that America was truly the land of the free and home of the oppressed. Though we may have collectively forgotten Key's backstory, it's interesting to consider why this contradiction, which was so well known in the 19th century, has not survived in our national memory. In fact, as the phrase that ends the song is so well known, it's also just odd to me that we rarely hear anyone take key and the anthem to task for the simple fact that it would be so easy, brave rhymes with slave, for goodness sake. How is it that neither Marcus Garvey, Malcolm X, nor Public Enemy came up with lesser-known hip-hop artist Brother Ali's line, Land of the Thief, home of the slave. Even when Malcolm X observed that this American motto was flawed, as he did in a speech in Ghana in May 1964, the irony of the background of its author and the exaltation of its ideals does not arise. Anytime you think that America is the land of the free, Malcolm told the African audience, you come there and take off your national dress and be mistaken for an American Negro and you will find out you're not in the land of the free. In this speech, however, despite being such an expert at 
pointing out inconsistencies. He doesn't add, in fact, Land of the Free was written by a slaveholder. Does it matter if the author of a powerful and inspirational composition in the past held views and did things with which we would not agree today and which we would consider antithetical to the very American ideals his writing professed? Do we hold the Declaration of Independence to a higher standard than the Star-Spangled Banner? We constantly make new meaning from our past. Recently, we have seen numerous examples of our rethinking of how we publicly remember the history of the Confederacy, or whether Harriet Tubman would replace Andrew Jackson on the $20 bill. Historian Pauline Meyer argues that Lincoln played a huge role in reinterpreting the Declaration and making it into a motto or an ancient faith shared by all Americans. In 1856, Lincoln suggested Americans needed to readopt the Declaration of Independence and with it the practices and policies which harmonize with it. Though we may have forgotten Key's racism while we remember Jefferson's, we have similarly washed it away from the song by adopting it as something to live up to. Every time Jackie Robinson stood on the bass lines as the anthem was played, or when civil rights movement activists had the flag ripped out of their hands as they peacefully marched, or when my dad saluted the flag at a segregated army base in Alabama, fighting for a nation that didn't respect him, the song became less keys and more ours. Though we should remember the flaws and failings that often animate our history, to me at least, they do not need to define it. We should remember that if 200 years after it was declared so by a slaveholder and enemy of free speech, the United States is the land of the free. That is because of the brave who have called it home since dawn's early light in September 1814. And a very interesting backstory. I hope you enjoyed this. That should do it for this episode. If you enjoyed today's show, please tell your friends and have them tell their friends. Be sure to email me at TomReadYourStory at Yahoo.com to send in your book, article, or poetry for me to perform. Or if you have questions about the show, as always, thanks to Anchor.fm for the chance to have an ongoing podcast. I very much appreciate it. Hope you and your friends come back real soon. Have a great day. Stay safe and take care. For more information on Tom's availability for your e-learning, commercial, audiobook, or video project, visit his website at www.tomzvoices.weebly.com. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tom Reads Your Story.